Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project with me, Matt Williams. This is the podcast that brings you the stories of the people saving nature. Stories that are at times hilarious, inspirational, slightly disgusting or even beautiful. And today I'm speaking to Lucy Purdy, editor of Positive News. Before that, Lucy was a freelance journalist writing for the likes of Guardian Sustainable Business and The New Statesman, and much of her writing was about the environment, outdoors, conservation and wildlife. In this conversation, we talk about the power of positive news, the magazine, and the concept of constructive journalism to not only change people's media diets, but also to inspire them to take action themselves. Lucy describes her passion for composting with an eloquence and enthusiasm that I've never heard applied to that topic before and she also covers the lengths that she'll go to to create the perfect mix of compost and we talk about the intimate relationship between nature and the language that we use to describe it. You can find out more about Positive News or subscribe to the magazine by visiting www.positive.news or following them on Twitter at Positive News UK. And you can follow Lucy on Twitter as well, at Lucy P, which is L-O-O-S-E-P-E-A. And don't forget that the Wild Voices Project podcast is part of an international project called Wild Voices Media, bridging emerging storytellers with aspirational and inspirational conservationists. You can find out more about the Wild Voices Project podcast at wildvoicesproject.org. And you can find out more about the global project at wild-voices.org. And don't forget, if you're a regular listener to the podcast or if you're a newcomer, you can subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. And I'd be really grateful if you're able to take the time to leave us a review as well. Anyway, I don't want to give too much of the hard sell, and this is a fantastic episode. So let's get going and dive right in. Cool. Um, Shall we crack on then? Yeah, let's go for it. Great. Okay. Um, Well, welcome to the Wild Voices Project podcast. Um, And I think I'll start where I often start, which is um, by by asking you how you build nature and wildlife into your week and day, particularly because you live and work in London, unless I'm wrong. No, that's right. Yeah, I live and work in London. And um, it's a really good question. Um, I think I had this idea before I moved down to London, which was about 11 or something years ago now that um nature was kind of something that that happened in the countryside <laughs> where I grew up I grew up in Bulbul Shropshire and um was kind of often outside and, and kind of immersed in nature but um more recently and I've kind of realized that's not the case at all like na- nature is everywhere and um for example just this week um I, I was I was kind of thinking about what I might talk about nature in London what's happened this week but um I, I, this week I've mainly been working, but I'm also, for example, training for a marathon at the moment. So I've been working and then kind of doing a bit of running in the evenings. Um, and I live, I'm lucky enough, I live quite near Hampstead Heath and some woods as well. But 
I really love just running down ordinary residential streets as well. Mm. Um, and and it's um, I've, I've kind of set myself this challenge just to ne- kind of notice what's what's growing or what's living here, and also how people are interacting with nature. And um, I was just thinking about this when I was running along this week. There's just so much to see always everywhere, whether it's kind of dandelions sprouting up on building sites or you see tiny little plants kind of creeping through their cracks in brickwork on a wall or, um, you know, you might see see a, the glim- a glimpse of a fox running away from you or running along the canal. It's people maybe growing food in crates on top of their barges, things like that. So there's, there's I think what I've realised now is that there's always something to see. Um, and it's it's how people kind of interact with nature as well. It's, it's particularly fascinating, I think, in a city. So things like people carving their initials into trees in the park, which is probably quite bad for the tree, but um, it's interesting to see. And it's, um, I, I think in, in places like London, there's there's parts of nature that perhaps wouldn't get noticed so much in the middle of the countryside. Mm. So they, they maybe take on more significance, whether it is, like I say, a, a plant growing on a wall or, um, I don't know, a mouse running along on the tube on the platform or something like that. <laughs> and um, yeah, one of my favourite things is when I spot someone on the tube holding a plant. <laughs> I always think it's really lovely to see, and it just feels quite incongruous when you you see someone clutching a huge plant. You know, you see their face peering around this greenery when they try not to fall down the escalator or something. Um, yeah, and it's it's a hard balance, like you like you kind of mentioned. It's it's a place where human nature is is strongest for sure. You know, the buildings, the roads, cars. You know, things like graffiti, litter. But um, I, I kind of love it when I try and remind myself that all of that stuff is happening on top of um, on top of this land, you know, London, which is nature too. Um, and, you know, it's been sculpted by nature itself, whether it's rivers or kind of looking back, glacial activity, that kind of thing. And all these, there's all these human stories basically unfolding in, within this really um, small kind of geographical area. You know, it's eight or nine million people live here or something. And all of those are, are going on as well. And it's pretty fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I read um, I read one of your pieces in Positive News, which we'll, we'll come on to later. But um, I read one of your articles, short articles, about, um, about all the wildlife that you can find if you just go for a walk through the streets of London. And, you know, you were comparing... Making the physical cranes that are constructing buildings sound like kind of wild beasts, but also finding <laughs> the actual nature on, you know, coming through the cracks in the pavements and mm. um, yeah. and people growing cactuses in their windows, and it was a really beautiful description. It's funny yeah. you mention you mentioned running as well. I've done bits and bobs of running over the years, and last night I went out for the first time with a local running club which got me a bit more off-road than usual into the countryside which was really nice and I I agree with you I think it's really nice to sometimes I go running with music with headphones in and just kind of head down Mm -hmm. and try and get it done but sometimes it's nice to not listen to music and to pay more attention to your surroundings as you're running and to notice the the wildlife that's around you how how does it how does it make you feel how does it change your emotions when you do take notice of the wildlife and the nature that's around you particularly in an urban environment yeah it's a good question I I think it it maybe just slows slows things down a bit which is quite I feel is quite necessary in the city which is 
you know, sometimes just so intense and kind of just um, crazy, really, and, and loud as well. But um, I think it, I, I guess for me, it kind of roots me in the moment, not to sound too cliched, but it's, um, it's, it's about thinking what's actually in front of me or what I'm noticing, what I'm seeing, whether that's people or um, just the landscape or snatches of conversations, anything like that rather than thinking about where I'm going or, you know, what emails I've got to re- reply to or, for me, what stage the magazine that I edit is at and kind of worries like that. It's it's more just, um, yeah, being in the moment and, and, and I guess the magic that's to be found in that. Yeah. So I want to go um, rewind slightly, and you already mentioned that you grew up in Shropshire. Where, where did your interest in or passion for the environment or the outdoors come from and you already said that you spent spent a little bit of time or a lot of time maybe in the outdoors when you're when you're growing up was it really from that yeah I think so it wasn't um it it was a really kind of nature immersed kind of childhood I suppose but not that consciously it just kind of was um as in I wasn't a birder or anything like that I just remember being outside loads (laughs) Um, often being kind of muddy <laughs> um, so just yeah things like making dens in the hedge near my house with my sister or poking sticks around in bonfires um, going to the stream near our house and just catching kind of jarfuls of stream water and then like seeing what's swimming about in them um, camping in the garden things like um, digging for clay (laughs) weird things like that doing that with my dad and then trying to make little pots out of this like muddy clay that we'd found um yeah like in the summer things like jumping over the hay bales not to sound too Theresa May but um (laughs) (laughs) yeah poking around in owl pellets things like that like peering into dead trees seeing what's growing in them trying to look for mushrooms in the autumn um birds eggs in the spring that kind of thing and and yeah just being in the garden a lot like helping in inverted commas my dad in the garden and and seeing like a steaming compost heap and things like that I mean I mean it wasn't all great it was it was things like um going on walks in the rain as well and like trudging along in the drizzle which just seemed to on these walks that seemed to go on forever um and also cycling my dad's a really keen cyclist um, and I've got <clears throat> got quite a few memories of like walking up Shropshire Hills after him, <laughs> dragging my bike and sort of weeping. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was good and bad. But there there was definitely a real kind of immersion in place. Um, and and I realise now that this was really special. I didn't really think about it at the time, but but it really was. Is there anything that's um, that's particular to Shropshire for you? Any particular locations within it that? that meant a lot to you that really grounded that connection to place for you I, I always think of the hills and I think of Shropshire and I don't know if that's because of the cycling I was forced to do but um but yeah but main, mainly just the um the area right around our house so I just I just feel like I, I knew every inch of it it was that kind of you know not not really needing to have anything to do at the weekends or in the evenings but I just go outside and go on a walk or mess around with my sister and my brother um but yeah, there's there's a few particular spots right near the house that, that are really special. There was um, like um, a particular tree that I think of. Um, my dad's actually a wood turner, so he, he's often making making things out of wood, whether it's on the lathe or kind of just kind of building furniture, things like that. 
So we were often um, hearing a lot about trees, like what species they were, what age they were, how they would behave on the lathe, whether they would crack, that kind of thing, and often looking looking for suitable logs that would make really interesting bowls as well. <laughs> um, and I, I remember one day we, we were on a walk in the, one of the fields behind the house, and there was, there was an oak tree that was, I think it had been struck by lightning or something like that. It was kind of dead anyway, and it was hollowed out. Um, and you could kind of look inside, you could peer into it. I think I was just tall enough. <clears throat> and we did that one day and there was a there was a fox skeleton in there. <laughs> oh, wow. Which was amazing. I remember feeling so excited. Um, you know, I can I can still picture the, the kind of ribs curling inwards and still seeing the teeth. And yeah, we were just fascinated by it. We were kind of we just like touched it, we were talking about it, we were trying to imagine why it might have um kind of met its demise and ended up in this tree. And I, I just, yeah, I think about that every single time I walk past it now. It's just such a special kind of moment. Um, and I just remember lots of moments like that. We we're always doing things like dissecting owl pellets, <laughs> which um, I just absolutely love doing. We'd, we'd literally take them home and, and get some kitchen paper and dissect them on the kitchen table, which our mum probably wasn't too impressed by. But I just remember seeing these, you know, these bits of bone, these bits of fur and yeah, again, it was just a kind of exercise in imagination, really. It was thinking about these these animals that maybe this owl had swallowed whole and 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 how they'd got there, and yeah, it was just amazing. It it sounds like you were naturally drawn to to these things. And by the way, you're you're in good company. I complete. I would have completely <laughs> shared your excitement at finding a fox skeleton. Um, it sounds like you were you were naturally drawn to getting outside into exploring. Do you think there's any reason why you weren't, you know, why you weren't tempted by sitting inside in front of the TV or all those sorts of things which keep so many kids? Inside? Yeah, I, no, yeah, I definitely was. Like I, I watched loads of TV um, as well, and and you know, I was really into things like as I got older, going shopping and and things like that, and they were really they were part of my childhood as well. But um. I, th- I think um, my my parents definitely have, especially my dad's got a real enthusiasm for the natural world, and I just think it it's rubbed off on me a bit. And it, when I was younger, perhaps I wasn't so um, I didn't think of that as being special or as, as being something I should nurture, but it just was. Like I remember this this one time around the same same time that we saw the we found the fox skeleton, just driving along. Someone with my dad were probably going um, I don't know to the shop or to school or something. And he suddenly like um, almost careens into a ditch and he, he, he started shouting, it's a kite, it's a kite. And we, <laughs> we kind of stopped the car and got out and he, he like guided my shoulders around, pointed up in the sky. And, and there was a, you know, a red kite there. We could see the forked tail. And yeah, I just remember standing there with him watching this amazing bird of prey. And um, I think it was, a, you know, obviously at the time before there, Obviously, they're a huge conservation success story, but I think it must yeah, have been... right. It, that sounds like an overreaction these days, but <laughs> yeah, at no, the time, it, that's fairly understandable. <laughs> yeah, he was really excited by it, and um, I just, I just really remember that. And, and obviously, now in in large parts of the UK, you see them everywhere. But um, I think it just reinforced that idea to me that nature is something to really get excited by. Like it's it's magical. It's it's a real treat when you see special things, and. Um, and yeah, I realise now, particularly that not everyone gets that chance, and it was really lucky to have that. So I wanted to ask as well, um, alongside the outdoors, nature, wildlife, the other one of the other big elements of your life today is 
writing and was that something else which began at an early age for you or maybe even just reading and drawing inspiration from other writers were there any books that have particularly shaped your your thinking or that you particularly often recommend to other people to read yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think I, I remember reading a lot. Like it was where I grew up it was a really small rural village with no shops or buses or anything like that. So there was often like not a huge amount to do in inverted commas. But um, I, I remember reading like fashion magazines and and things like that and getting this like glimpse of of another world. But um, yeah, also reading loads and loads of books, all the classic kind of Roald Dahl and Enid Blyton, all those kinds of things. Um. And yeah, as I got a bit older, there's definitely authors and writers who've who've been really inspiring to me. Um, what springs to mind first of all is is George Monbiot's book Feral, which is obviously about rewilding, which I read, I would say about ten years ago, or maybe it's not been out that long, but whenever it first came out, anyway, which just kind of really, really excited me about by this idea. Sorry, it made me excited about this idea of rewilding and how we can, as human beings, we could we could actually take the difficult place that we're at um, in terms of the planet and actually do something really positive about it, not just kind of make it less bad or cover up all the mistakes that we've made. But, um, but yeah, kind of do something really exciting and positive. So that, that one stuck with me. Um, and, yeah, I've, I've always <clears throat> definitely always loved kind of reading and, and language and literature but also journalism I think there's some absolutely amazing writers who write about the natural world and about people's connection with it that it's it's a huge kind of way of of um enthusing I think and inspiring other people to be interested in it um are there any other particular environmental or nature journalists you'd you'd recommend so I love I absolutely love Naomi Klein um George Monbiot Again, I think kind of bridges a really interesting uh, gap between writing. He often writes about politics and sometimes quite radical kind of ideas, but when he connects those with with the environment, and it, especially when he writes in a really deeply personal way, I absolutely love his writing. Um, yeah, there's there there are the people who spring to mind. I think also of of Mark Boyle, who um, I'm lucky enough to think of as a as a bit of a friend who you might know of, he's, he's the so-called moneyless man. So he's written um, a lot about um, his experiences trying to live without money. But his writing is also often really deeply linked to, to nature and, and to kind of wildlife and the kind of wildness in human nature. And um, yeah, he's amazing too. Oh, yeah, I've read his very beautifully written pieces about foregoing technology um, mm. that have been published in the guardian if not elsewhere as well yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. i've really enjoyed those um, he, literally, he literally writes them out doesn't he and sends them in um through snail mail which i think's really cool <laughs> yes it explains to the boss in the article that they're handwritten and then given to given or posted to a to a guardian editor and yeah. um that if you want to get in touch with him then then he can be sent a, sent a handwritten letter yeah i love that for you. <laughs> <laughs> um what was I going to ask next? Oh, yeah. So I want I want to come on to on to positive news in a moment. Before doing that, I just wanted to um, kind of de- depart from from your background and from the Shropshire landscape by asking if you could, because you write this story so beautifully, if you could say a little bit about the 
the story you've written about just before you left Shropshire for university? Yeah, I, I wrote this quite a few years ago now, but um, yeah, it was, it was a piece, um, I think it was called The Quiet Intelligence of Nature. And it was it was a piece I'd written actually after coming off a course where I, I did meet Mark Boyle for the first time. He was one of the people leading it. And it was called Wild Economics. It was at, held at Schumacher College down in Devon. And um, it was... It was yeah, it was a bit of an attempt to kind of sum up what I'd learned on that week, but um, also I guess try and pinpoint in myself a kind of um, where where I was kind of at with with my relationship with nature. Like I said before, I, I kind of moved to London and I had this idea in my mind of of nature being at home in the countryside and London being separate. But that that week was all about um, how we can kind of truly connect to each other and how all of our needs as human beings can be met um, in ways that aren't dependent on money, which I think is a really fascinating subject because when you, when you really break it down, so many of these processes and relationships um, that we have in today's world are connected to money. But um, we, we did things on that week, which I then wrote about in this piece, um, for example, going on what was called a deep time walk. I don't know if you've ever been on one. I haven't been on one, but I've heard of them. But it might be worth you explaining what one is. Yeah, sure. So um, it was—it's basically you, you walk. Um, I think it's four point five kilometers, and each of the kilometers represents um, one of the Earth's billion years. <laughs> and you basically walk—you you literally walk the the distance. And as you as you go, um, whoever's kind of set up the walk. Teaches, teaches you and talks at each relevant step about the kind of moment in ecological time that you're at. So you, you, you kind of, um, it, it's everything from when the first kind of plants began to form on the surfaces of rocks um, right up until, yeah, I don't want to give it away actually, but the, the bit um, right at the end, as you can probably imagine, is, has got a human kind of element. But um, it's it's an amazing process. It's it's um, It really taught me, um, a sense of awe at the depth of time which I think is something that I don't know about you Matt but I don't really think about that or didn't really think about that 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 much in the kind of course of just every day but it's it's so um I think perspective is is so valuable but it's really hard to come by but this deep time walk really does the trick it's um it makes you kind of feel the sense of awe at the yeah like I say the depth of time and to really kind of feel the magic of life as well and how how um, lucky we are to be here, basically, how all these crazy kind of chemical and whatever else processes um, meant that we, we could be here as human beings on this earth at this moment in time. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the article kind of delved into quite kind of hippie ideas like that, I guess. But, um, yeah, it was, it, was also, it was also about me and, and kind of I think I, I wrote about um, this sense of humanness that lies within all of us, which I, th I think is really interesting when, when you're talking, as we are, about the idea of nature, um, <clears throat> it not kind of being you know, about animals or about plants or something outside of us, but something that's within all of us. Um, and yeah, the, like, like we explored on that week, the, the way that money and jobs um, kind of create this disconnect, really, and, and this, this disconnect inherent in so much of our lives, I think, at the moment, whether it's the way we buy things, the way we eat, the way we cook. Um, but I, I love the idea of tapping tapping into that a little more, trying to um, live live a little more from our primal kind of urges. And, 
you know, these deep think these things that are deeply within our DNA, the way that we were designed to be. And what really excites me and what a lot of my writing um, is about is, is how we can find ways to bring these back or to nurture those. And yeah, that piece was, was one of those. I wrote it a few years ago now, so I'm probably... I'd probably cringe a little bit some of the lines, but that was the kind of idea. <laughs> no, no, it's a lovely piece to read. Um, and that all connects back to this concept that you spoke about a moment ago of rewilding, and you've written in other pieces as well about the idea of not just rewilding the landscape and yeah. places and bringing species back, but also the, the, the idea of rewilding ourselves and yeah. reconnecting ourselves with, well, exactly mm. as you've just said, with some of those primal urges and with that connection to a sense of uh deep time and also um and also our place in you know this is the one that always makes my mind boggle in space as well in the sense of how small the earth is compared to the the rest of the universe and for me that doesn't raise feelings of kind of nihilism or hopelessness it actually raises feelings of how special and how lucky we are to be on this amazing planet and Mm. uh, what a kind of duty there is on us to to protect it yeah totally totally it's an amazing feeling yeah um so i just want to shift gears a little bit and talk about positive news um and maybe ask to begin with when when did you get involved in it and could you just describe to people what the well what it is in your own words really and what the mission of the magazine is too yeah sure so we're, we're a print magazine. We, we publish quarterly in print and we publish daily online as well at positive.news. <clears throat> and um, it's, it's basically, it, it covers all sorts of subjects that the kind of mainstream media would cover. So education, social issues, business, environment, um, lifestyle, whatever, but through a lens of what we call constructive journalism. So it's um, it's covering subjects not just from the point of what's difficult or challenging about them, but also what's being done. Um, uh, the solutions, you know, instances of progress, possibility, that kind of thing. So it's it's not about ignoring any of the problems or challenges in the world, but it's it's about investigating them through what I hope is kind of rigorous quality journalism. Uh, what's being done about them, and the the basic idea. Um, for the publication which has been going for a long time by the way a lot, lot longer than I've been involved um, about 23 years I think in one form or another um, is that it's it's there to balance the news media which we we feel is overwhelmingly very negative so all of the the journalism that we publish is about trying to create a more balanced um, empowering and inspiring story really about humanity and um, we hope that by reading our stories and our journalism, that it will kind of slightly shift people's sense of what's possible in the world. Um, and yeah, I've been invol- involved for quite a few years now. I've been editor for, I think, a year and a half. But before then, I was writing and kind of sub-editing and, and various things. Um, and yeah, it's a, re- it's a real pleasure. I think it's one of the best jobs in journalism, if not the best job. <laughs> and um, yeah, we really kind of take our time over it. We hope that the magazine's like beautifully designed. And um, yeah, it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a passion project, to be honest. But it's, it's, um, yeah, it's a great thing to work on. So you've mentioned the website. Um, and there's also a, correct me if I'm wrong, a quarterly print edition, which is really beautiful and i think the look of it has changed from what it used to look like a few years ago again correct me if i'm wrong on that but um wh- where 
where and how can people read the the print issue yeah so we we actually um it was it was a newsprint for a long time uh before before i was involved and while i was involved and then we we transitioned to um a magazine a couple of years ago we actually ran a, a big crowdfunding campaign where we um, basically invited readers and journalists to become owners of the magazine. So it's actually now um, owned by a cooperative of readers and journalists. And at that point, we then relaunched as a, as a beautiful print magazine because we, we wanted the kind of um, the the vehicle to reflect the kind of the what we yeah the beauty of the journalism really. So people can get hold of it by subscribing um, at positive.news forward slash join. Um, and you can also kind of buy uh, one issue and, and, and <clears throat> kind of get a sense of it and, and see see if it suits you. And then, yeah, like I say, we publish online daily as well. Um, and we've got various um, social media channels. So lots of people from all over the world kind of reading and sharing our stories every day, which is which is pretty inspiring. And, yeah, we really hope that it will have them, um, even if it's a small impact, it will kind of send out ripple effects, really, that... Um, yeah, that humanity is capable of great things as well, and that wherever there's a problem in the world, there's um, what we find is that there's always someone somewhere working on a solution to that problem. And you've talked about this a little bit already, but um, my interpretation, at least, is that the magazine is not just trying to diversify people's media diets, quote unquote, so mm. to, to provide a different style of journalism. But also that the the positive and inspiring examples of solutions to some of the problems that society and the environment faces might also inspire further change and bolster the movements and the action that's that's already taking place. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Exactly. It's it's about um, shining a light on on the things that are going well and and, and the people that are working together, whether it's um, you know, instances of compassion or just joined up thinking or um, whether it's one individual with an amazing um, kind of invention or idea, you know, things like that. And um, it's it's based on the idea, the idea, I guess, that what you focus on grows. Um, and we, we hear anecdotally from a lot of our readers that this is um, this has kind of had an impact on their lives, which I find just brilliant to hear about. I love hearing readers' stories. You know, they say um, maybe they read about a certain scheme years ago in Positive News and it it encouraged them to maybe set up their own version of that in their own community or, you know, reading one of our articles um, meant they had a particular conversation with someone they wouldn't ordinarily have spoken to one day and that had its own ripple effects, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what, what kind of media you read, Matt, or what your, what your um, experience of this is, but we hear from a lot of people that, they basically feel the news with obviously the 24-hour news cycle and digital media and technology is, is just really overwhelming um, and overwhelmingly negative as well. And, and that, that has a really kind of difficult impact on them and their well-being um, aside from, you know, what they end up doing with their lives and, and how they act, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's um, it's it's great to hear those stories and it's it's really, I think it's just really exciting um to yeah to see where the publication can go and for me it's like I say it's just such an honor to and a pleasure to work on these stories every day I mean I think it's pretty tough being a journalist sometimes for lots of reasons but um 
having to work on stories that are just um you know calling people out from when they've done things wrong or having nurturing these kind of adversarial conversations between people on certain subjects I just I am um, I think it's it's a tricky job to do sometimes so I feel very lucky to be in this one <laughs> yeah I think I think in response to your question I'm fairly typical probably in that I read some of my news online through through some of the mainstream uh, media organizations and then I get a lot of my news through my social media as well which probably isn't yeah. that healthier healthier a media diet either I don't know, I don't know. depends who you follow <laughs> it, it does yeah um it does that's true but I think that social media can be a place where there's lots of positive stuff but it can also be a place where there's sometimes negative interactions between people and then also yeah. if yeah. you're not following the right people then you can end up with a you know, with a news feed that is non-stop, but also reflects a lot of the the less optimistic news that yeah. you get in the mainstream media as well. Um, yeah, I think our, our approach is all about um, kind of urging people to m- maybe get that balance. It's certainly not about you know ignoring any of the problems in the world, like I said, and it's it's also not to discredit any of the amazing journalism that's going on out there because uh, you know there, there, there's so many talented investigative journalists and writers who were over you know rightly holding people to account and uncovering you know problems and, and that's a huge that's hugely important and we, we would certainly never you know seek to replace that but what we're trying to do with positive news is is just give people people an alternative I guess um, and we, we kind of say to people look at your maybe look at your media diet in the same way that we would look at our food diets just just yeah being a bit more mindful about the um information that we take in and the impact that that has on us and um the way we view other people and the way we view the the world and yeah the way we view um um what's possible really the sense of possibility for for human beings and i think that it's a really interesting question for when we're thinking about nature as well like what what if we do, if we could sh- shift people's sense of what's possible, what what impact would that have? And we need, um, I think, at this time, we really need new new approaches because uh, clearly things aren't working out that great in lots of ways. So I think this is one of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I want to come on to that in a moment. Some of the nature and conservation stories that you've you've covered either that you've written or other people have written for the magazine um i wanted to ask though going back to something you said a moment ago about people who say that reading an article in the magazine has inspired them to do something or change their life in a particular way do you have a particular example of that that stands out um that's a good question um let me try and think of a good one um I actually can't think of very many good examples. One that one that springs to mind. We reported on um, a scheme set up by I think it's I think they would call themselves um, sustainability kind of body organisation that work on behaviour change things like that. And they're based in London, called Hubbub, and I think it's them that run something called the Pumpkin Rescue, which is um, when obviously at Halloween everyone gets the pumpkins out and carves them, and then there's there's these kind of however many hundreds of thousands of tons or whatever of of pumpkins that just get thrown out the next day. Um, A woman got in touch to say that she'd read our article about that and she'd, you know, she'd set up a kind of local way of of collecting up the pumpkins and and putting them to good use. I can't remember whether she was cooking them or composting them or a mixture, I can't remember. But 
it was just a great example of you know a, a, a really small action that um yeah just a story that that urged her to think well what could I do to tackle this subject um and it, it just inspires me because I think that if if even you know a fraction of, of readers um read stories and then took some sort of positive action based on that I think it could it could yeah change the way the world looks really and I think that if more journalism did that it would it really could have a huge impact and, and it's I think it's important to say actually that journalism is approaching uh, sorry embracing this approach more so the uh, the idea of constructive journalism is really kind of gathering attention some of the major um kind of news outlets for example the guardian are, are really embracing it and building it into their reporting and i think that's really exciting yeah i saw a, a photo story on the guardian website yesterday i think it was that was um that was on a nature and wildlife theme and that's probably partly because those are the sorts of stories that catch my eye but that was <laughs> uk conservation heroes people doing amazing things for the environment and wildlife in their local area and it had a sort of photo story of seven or eight people but i think i think you're right i certainly get that sense that on the on the from the news organizations that i read there is more of that profiling of the positive things that are happening mm, yeah yeah the magazine the positive news magazine is so rich in content every edition i was wondering where do you find where do you and the team find the stories because they're coming from all over the world as well what's what's that process like of finding the content each time do you get most of it coming through to you or are you going out and researching it or i suppose it's probably a mix i guess yeah it is it's a it's a mixture and um, say like any other news organization we get um, press releases and we get lots of story ideas and we work with a, a network of, of really fantastic uh, freelance journalists who are based around the world so they get in touch with with pitches and um, and then yeah sometimes uh, the ideas come from within the team where we've maybe seen a seen a subject um get the same kind of treatment in the mainstream press over and over again and we think oh hang on there's an opportunity here to really look at this differently um so we might come up with the ideas ourselves and then commission them out but um yeah the, the, i get asked that question a lot like where do you get your story ideas is it hard to think to find positive news stories and, and it's 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 definitely not <laughs> they're, just, they're just absolutely everywhere and there's always a, a ton more um ton more stories um for every issue that we could publish than we have space for unfortunately and we're also a small team with limited resources but um but yeah they're absolutely everywhere like i said before i think it's um it's often just looking at things from a slightly different um angle so uh, what springs to mind in a recent issue um i interviewed some former uh, it's quite a kind of hard-hitting subject but some former neo-nazis from around the world who had basically given up those kind of lives of, of hate and now work on helping others lead those movements mm. so um yeah and then I, and then more recently still i interviewed russell brand um about what he had learned after kind of reaching the depths of addiction so in his case drugs drink sex fame and um yeah it's just it's just uh it's just fascinating there's so many stories out there and and i think everybody's got a a positive human story within them as well which i find really fascinating something that they've maybe learned through their life or a skill they have that they could share and um, yeah everyone's got a story has there been a particular story or article maybe one that you've worked on maybe not that the magazine has covered 
um, that's been particularly inspiring to you in in recent, I don't know, let's say weeks or months in recent editions? Yeah, so I, I've literally just sent the last issue <clears throat> off to press. I think it's being printed today, actually. So the one that's really um, kind of clear in my mind is is actually one of our stories from the new issue. Um, we we covered this whole really exciting wave of um, kind of increased public consciousness over plastics, which obviously has a, a really strong nature link as well, um, given that I think a lot of the awareness around it is, seems to stem from Blue Planet and David Attenborough talking about this problem. So we, we profiled in the new issue um, some people who are kind of pine, either pioneering alternative materials or um, we, we talked to the lady who um, has been pioneering the idea of a, a plastic-free supermarket aisle and um, has recently helped to establish one at a supermarket in Amsterdam, which is exciting. And then I also um, interviewed the couple who are running a zero-waste shop um, down in Devon. And they were really interesting to talk to because they were just a, they were a kind of ordinary um, young couple with a, with a young baby, actually, from Manchester. Um, and they, they just kind of had got sick of stacking all their recycling up in their flat because I think they didn't have recycling facilities where they lived so they had to stack it up and every week take it to their kind of local recycling depot or whatever and that just made them think hang on there's something not quite right about this and we you know they, they kind of sensed that there was there was a better way to do it and they basically got more and more into this idea of zero waste and ended up moving down to Devon and opening up a shop that is completely free of packaging um, and yeah, they're, they're particularly interesting because the, the, the guy used to be a footballer, professional foot, footballer for Man United. Mm. So he had a really interesting story of kind of going from one extreme to the other. But he's, he said something to, something to me like um, he feels now that he's doing something that's better for his soul. <laughs> and I thought that was a really cool way of putting it, probably not a way you'd, you'd phrase it in the Manchester United um, dressing room. But uh, that he, he just kind of had this sense in himself about wanting to do something that was going to help create a better world for their daughter. And, and this is what he felt called to do. So I found that really inspiring. Oh, that's really nice. I've just spent most of today trying to get my head around, um, around some of the more technical details of plastics policy and things like the, uh, producer recycling obligation regulation and oh well that sounds fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but i suppose that gets at the heart really of a tension between to tackle some of these problems and come up with solutions it's always about a mix of tax incentives and financial incentives and government regulation on one hand and then on the other hand something which i think positive news plays a really powerful role in which is awareness raising and a cultural shift as well and yes, I don't think yeah. that behavioural change or or that tackling of the problem can really happen without the the behind the scenes cultural shift that takes place in terms of people's attitudes and their values. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And um, yeah, that just made me think about. Um, I, th I think probably there's a bit of a, a tendency sometimes, and I definitely have noticed this in myself, to think about um, you know policymakers, government, whoever else it is. Being, being the ones, you know, to, who are really, really going to make the change. Like if we just lean on them enough or if we just open their awareness enough, um, you know, we'll get certain laws and, and, and ways of doing things better. But I think what I've what I've learned, and particularly through working at Positive News, is that um, the change is, is really in all of us. And it sounds like a cliche, but I think I think it's a really empowering way to look at it. If you, if you think rather than, oh, gosh, this is 
this particular thing is is really terrible. I really wish the government would make a law about it or something. It's um, <clears throat> it just flicks something I think in your head if you think <clears throat> and if I think in my own life, right? What can I do or what can I do today? What tiny little change can I make? <clears throat> excuse me, that might you know make a difference. And obviously there is a governments have a huge responsibility and there are certain arguably certain subjects that only only their kind of um, global kind of joined up action is really going to tackle but yeah I just I think it's it's really empowering to think a lot about what we ourselves can do as well and not in a kind of preachy uh, guilt trippy way but in a really exciting inspiring way like what can I do in, in my whether it's my household or my uh, community or my I don't know my region or or even if it's just on social media I think there's yeah I don't know there's always a way to make some sort of change I think to to follow that instinct in yourself that there's a better way to do something like uh like the foot the former footballer that I just mentioned he kind of really listened to that in, in himself and yeah I don't know in my life in my experience when you when I re- when I've really listened to those moments in myself it's uh, usually led to really good things. <laughs> one of the one of the articles that I think I think you wrote this one or did the interviews for this one was around inspiring young conservationists. Um, I was wondering, perhaps because some of them might even be listening to this episode, whether or not you can say <laughs> a little bit more about um, about that article. Yeah, it'd be a pleasure. That was in the last print issue, actually, and it's I think it's one of the most um, popular pieces from the magazine. I, I just um I just felt like there was a bit of a narrative about young people today and um you know, particularly around technology, of maybe people just being um in their own worlds and, and only communicating to each other through technology and only being interested in that and maybe not you know, taking on um taking on the mantle, I guess, when it comes to conservation. But then I just only had to dig uh, a little bit deeper and obviously there's hundreds and thousands of amazing kind of really passionate um, young people who, who care deeply about the natural world. So we decided to reflect this in the magazine by profiling um, four inspiring young conservationists. And they're, they're all teen- teenagers, they're all from the UK actually, and they're, they're just amazing. They're really passionate about nature, um, and, uh, and not just for themselves, but they're, they're really engaged in, in spreading the word really in a really kind of positive way in their communities um, and on social media too. So I, I got to interview them, which was amazing. They have a, a staggering kind of breadth of knowledge about nature. And some of them were particularly interested in particular subjects. A couple of them were birders. Um, one guy, Zach, talked to me really passionately about, about moths. Um, but yeah, that, that they're so clued up, but they're also, <clears throat> yeah, they're really kind of frank about where we're at in terms of climate change and also the loss of biodiversity. But they, they just had this kind of, um great attitude to it one of them said to me um i think it was something like when i hear about climate change yeah i feel depressed but it it doesn't make me want to give up it makes me want to do something about it and i just thought that was a that was a brilliant message (laughs) Mm, yeah i'm very lucky to to know and be friends with some of the young people that you interviewed and um to be friends with lots and lots of other young people who are incredible conservationists and environmentalists and this makes me sound very old and wizened but (laughs) i've got a lot lot of optimism and hope for the future of our wildlife and our natural environment based on the young people who i know who are who are working on it now um cool i wanted to i wanted to ask actually as well um 
what advice would you give to a young person who wants to get involved in in environmental journalism, writing and editing, or maybe just journalism and writing more generally? And is there any advice that is often given that you would suggest they ignore? Oh, good question. I mean, I, I think I think writing is is a fantastic job. <laughs> I won't talk about the, how it's difficult to to make money, how there's not that many jobs because that that gets spoken about a lot, but. I would I would really recommend it as a career. I think for me, writing and being able to express myself through through writing and journalism, particularly when it comes to the natural world, has just been so um, so rewarding. Uh, I, I think I would just say, yeah, I don't know. Writing about nature, I think it's the most. It, it, to me, it feels like the most crucial kind of pressing subject of our age. So I think. That passionate young writers who can really articulate and uh, on this and really take the conversation forward are really, really, really necessary. My advice would just be to to kind of write from the heart, really. I think, and um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great career. It's a great career. Just keep going. You have to be quite tenacious and um, take lots of rejections, especially when you're pitching. It can be quite, quite hard. But um, I think, I think people who feel that kind of calling to to write into whether it's journalism or or books or whatever i think definitely listen to that would be my recommendation and, and go for it try and make it work and do you have a particular kind of process or routine um when you're trying to get into the headspace of preparing to write something is there anything that helps you to to kind of get into the right place uh mentally and emotionally to do writing or do you just kind of sit down and go um it's a good question i i'd love to say i have this amazing process and um i kind of take the time to i don't know light a candle and <laughs> um, kind of think about that but usually when i'm writing it's um it's because i'm on deadline <laughs> and it's just got to be done so um yeah i mean there's there's a, there's a process i really like to try and try and understand what I'm writing about the subjects I'm writing about as well as I can before I do interviews so that you know you can you can speak to the people and get the most out of the conversation and and really try and cover cover things in a way that haven't been covered before is, is what I often try and aim to do ask people questions that they maybe haven't been asked before and, and try and yeah like I say take the conversation forward a little way but it's that's not always possible um but yeah it's, it's just trying to trying to convey the the heart of the project whatever it is I'm writing about like really get to grips with why it's relevant to people and and try and make it accessible um as well maybe I can ask a couple of nitty-gritty questions actually then um so when you're interviewing people are you taking notes or do you record the audio of the conversation and then use that later and how do you come up with questions that people might not have been asked before do you go back and look at previous interviews with them and that sort of thing and try and figure out areas that haven't been covered yeah i do um and then if, if it's positive news there's it's often um there's often an inherently kind of different approach that we're taking on the subject so um like i say it's it's often about drawing out what's being done as opposed to what's going wrong so we, we we although we would talk about the whatever the challenge or problem is um at the heart of the subject we'd kind of i generally move on from that quite quickly and then it's um, it's asking questions like even in the interview t- interview kind of technique stage, you can you can change the way that a conversation goes, um, and and this is what constructive journalism is all about. Really, it's it's getting to the nitty gritty of the journalism process and how it can be how it can be done slightly differently. 
so for example if it's for example interviewing someone who's who's been through a terrible event or a, a difficult event in their life it's not just asking why it was difficult and how it was difficult but it's it's also drawing out the the strength that got them through it whether that's their courage or you know what they've learned from that experience so yeah what was what was the rest of the question sorry Matt I've forgotten the rest oh you asked about recording as well yeah yeah the first bit about whether you take notes or whether you record yeah so I went to journalism college and and learned um how to do shorthand so I can theoretically record people up to 110 words per minute I think it is with my shorthand (laughs) but it's um it's often nice especially if I'm meeting someone face to face to have a bit more of a conversation with them so I usually do a bit of both I tend to record and then kind of back up in shorthand as well (laughs) Mm, okay cool that's really interesting around the questions stuff as well I probably am I could probably pick your brains at some point about (laughs) about good (laughs) question technique and coming up with good questions for interviews um I want to shift gear again though and move on to move on to a topic which I know um, that you're really passionate about which is our food and composting as well. Um, I've just got myself a new allotment um, in oh, the cool. in the place that I've just moved to. Um, and I'm a little bit of a novice, but I'm going to spend some of this weekend um, planting my first seeds and getting ready for getting the allotment ready as well for planting those out in a few in a few weeks' time. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the role that growing food and composting play in your life. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it talking about tapping into things that I feel a deep connection to, this is really one of them for me, growing food. And I, I also kind of love cooking. And it's I think it's that whole process and kind of joining the dots. And it's a real cliche now, but knowing where your food comes from, I think, um, just adds a, a really crucial bit of the jigsaw somehow in my mind. So I find it really, really satisfying. And I, I love the whole process, whether it's the planning stage that you're at, Matt, <laughs> or um, growing the seeds, you know, growing out, planting out seedlings, obviously harvesting. But um, one of the ways I think I connect most with the whole process is, is actually around the soil. I, I love, like, um, thinking about how to nurture a healthy soil and what the soil really needs. So I'm really interested in things like permaculture and no-dig gardening and yeah, then as you mentioned, composting as well, which is one of my kind of mini obsessions, I think. I find the whole process of composting pure magic, really. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I'm a bit geeky and obsessed by it. Um, so it, often in the day, I just find myself thinking about what I might be able to kind of grab to put in my compost heap, whether it's a banana skin on the floor or a bit of orange peel or... I don't know, a bunch of flowers that someone's chucked out, relationships gone wrong, or I just kind of feel... <laughs> For feel you, there's that. an opportunity to grow some corn Yeah, rats. there's an opportunity, yeah. <laughs> I just feel my fingers kind of itching to pick them up. Or, and even in London, you know, it's like walking through Soho, for example, at, um, on a Friday night, you know, there's all this corrugated cardboard that gets stacked up, ready for the bin men or um, refuse operatives, whatever I should say, um, kind of to collect. So that I, I just think about things like, Oh, how much the worms in my compost heap would love to crawl through those ridges on the com- on the cardboard, and and yeah, I've been known to leave restaurants with like posh salad scrapings in my handbag, or see things like sawdust coming out from underneath the door of a jo- joiner's warehouse, or and I, I just think, wow, I could I could add that into the mix. That would be amazing. Even horse poo on the Mall in London, royal horse poo. I've seen it, and I thought, oh, I'm really tempted to take that with me. And yeah, at home too, I, I'm always tearing up envelopes or bits of paper, saving 
tea bags and vegetable scraps. I even structure meals, I must confess, about how much great compost scraps they would make. So choose things like roast dinners because they make loads of peelings. And then, yeah, just really look forward to scattering them on the heap. And I just love this idea that um, kind of while I'm sleeping, the worms are getting to work and making this amazing mix of, you know, scrunched up egg boxes or carrot peelings or old lettuce or whatever it is. And, and making this somehow making beautiful earth from it, I just find it absolutely magic. And when it's ready, I love I love smelling it, getting my hands into it, and and yeah, using it to, to put on my beds outside in my little London garden. And I used to when I lived in a shared flat, I used to get my flatmates um, to do it as well, and do things like save coffee um, granules at work and tea bags in the office. So yeah, it just I don't know why exactly, but. <laughs> It really taps in to me for some sort of, into some sort of process. I guess it's um, rebirth and renewal, and yeah, it just makes my heart really happy to do it for some reason, and just to be out in the garden as well. So you'll have a great time in your allotment. I'm quite jealous. <laughs> I've never heard <laughs> such an eloquent exposition of the beauty <laughs> of compost, and I think I think I found the quote that will accompany this episode on social media, which is, "I've been known to leave posh restaurants with leftover salad in my handbag to put more heap later." <laughs> Haven't you done that? I thought everyone did. <laughs> I'm sure I will be this summer. <laughs> now that I've now that I've got the idea, um, could you briefly just say a little bit more about what permaculture and no dig? planting are for people who may not know about them and what the principles or the the philosophy behind those are yeah i'll try it i mean i'm definitely not an expert but um permaculture is an amazing kind of movement um of and i think it, it started in australia i think in the in the 70s or 80s but it's it's quite difficult to explain but at its heart it's it's um it's not just about growing food actually it's about all sorts of different processes and ways of relating and systems um but doing things in line with Earth's natural processes, I guess. So when it when it comes to growing food, um, they the kind of principles of permaculture are really things like, for example, um, growing kind of companion crops together, so that one crop may attract uh, bugs that would then feed of the pests on the pests of um, that would would attract. Sorry, I'm getting this all mixed up, but basically yeah plants that would grow together in a really kind of mutually beneficial way um like what is it is it marigolds and carrots or something like yes, that yeah that, kind of, that kind of thing that's where the, the kind marigolds of attract the pests instead of the instead of the carrots and then the carrots are thereby protected exactly so it's kind of a bit sacrificial which is a bit sad but um yeah things like that and and obviously permaculture's um principles of really different depending on where in the in the world you're growing but um, I just find that a completely inspiring movement, and the, there's there's so many organisations. There's the Permaculture Association in the UK, which is doing amazing work, like connecting up all these kind of local projects. Um, and obviously, I don't know if you know of the map, but the Permaculture Magazine, which is a publication that we know quite well here at Positive News, um, doing amazing things, telling the stories of these amazing permaculture projects that are happening around the world. So yeah, that's that's permaculture, and there's so much information um, now online that I would really urge yourself or anyone else who's maybe growing food already or thinking about doing so to look into it because it's it's things like um, 
you know, growing organically is a, is a huge kind of cornerstone of permaculture and also using things like natural pest control or natural teas or as fertilizers and avoiding pesticides, that kind of thing. So it's a really, it's a really beautiful kind of satisfying way to grow. And then no dig, um, which I know even less about, <laughs> but it's basically the, the idea of, um, of, of not digging, of, of letting the soil, um, do its own thing basically and to allow the amazing kind of layers and um of not only soil itself but also all, all the in, all the insects and um beneficial kind of microbes and everything to develop in the way that nature wants them to which not only being better is not only better for the earth for the for the soil for the planet but is also now really interesting research about how it can actually um boost kind of yields and things like that as well so yeah, I'm definitely not an expert on either of those, but they're they're two kind of processes which just really appeal to me. Um, yeah, when I'm growing, and 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 like I said, they really they really do have roots that reach out beyond that into into a lot of life and different processes as well. So yeah, it's amazing reading to be done on those those subjects. Yeah, I think as you've as you've said, gardening, in my own personal experience, and also from stuff that I've read, can and growing your own growing your own food as well clearly has benefits for the environment particularly if it's done in a done in a mindful and a sustainable way um mm, yeah. in gardens or at allotments it has benefits for mental health and i certainly feel better when i'm out doing some gardening and i know there's been studies that show the benefit of gardening and growing vegetables growing food as well for mental health and it has <coughs> benefits for diet too and you know, even if you're not vegetarian or vegan, having more plants in your diet is no bad thing at all. I've got a little bit obsessed in the past few weeks with um, with the Rich Roll podcast. Um, he's a he's a fifty something year old ultra runner in the US, and oh, cool. he, a lot of his podcasts cover the kind of diet and um, plants and meat and the balance between those and the impact of those on on our health, on our well-being, on the natural environment. So it's a subject that I've I've got a little bit obsessed by in in the past few weeks. Um, That's so yeah. it. It's all it's all connected, though, isn't it? It's, yeah. Once you start to delve into any of these subjects, you then yeah, there's just always so much more reading, research to do. But um, yeah, it's it's a really rich mine. It's it's amazing. I think like like you say as well, it's just um. It's about considering more. Like it's the same way that positive news is is about maybe getting people to think more carefully about their media diet. It's um, it's just for me gardening's choosing to spend time outside to grow some vegetables that I, I'm sure I can probably get cheaper in the supermarket. It's it's also so much more than that. It's about slowing down as well for me and um, definitely becoming more present in the moment. And um, yeah, it's a, it's about really feeling feeling myself being somewhere and doing something rather than struggling to get somewhere else, I guess, at its heart. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure by the time I've spent the money on the, uh, on the allotment itself, on the petrol to get down or on the compost, on, on the seeds, I'm sure given, given that I'm not very talented either as a, as a, um, as a vegetable grower, um, you know, I probably won't be making a financial saving on the vegetables, but that's not really the point for me, to be honest. No. Um, no. It's about all the other things that we've talked about. Um, okay. Um, I want to move on to a final topic that I know you're passionate about as well, which is the connection between nature and language. 
Um, yeah. And I, I've read a few of the articles that you've written on this subject as well. And I thought what was really interesting that came through in the articles was that you write about the way that, and people should really go and find your articles. I'll put some of the links in the notes that accompany this episode. Um, that you write about the way that we love to leave a mark on the landscape, also about the way that the landscape can leave a mark on us if we let it. And what I, I think for me, what you were writing about in terms of landscapes and nature and language really connected to what Positive News tries to do overall, which is that um, it's about changing the stories which we tell ourselves and changing the story of the landscape's relationship with us or our relationship with the landscape. And I thought there's a really nice kind of connection between all of those things. Cool. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a fascinating subject and it's one I, I really got interested in in, in more depth I guess a few years ago when I was when I was freelancing and I wrote an article about a guy called Dominic Tyler who is a, a photographer and he he was asked to I think he was commissioned to do some photos for a book about wild swimming and he he had to write the kind of the blurbs as well the captions and he he kind of describes um sitting down to do this and realizing that he only had what he called the bare bones of language to describe nature and this is despite growing up in the in the countryside i think um you know just feeling like really unequipped to explain the beauty of these kind of landscapes or these scenes that he was trying to describe so he's he um set about collecting words basically so he, he set up this project you might know it matt called the land reader project um and that he also published a book again it was a few years ago but it was called uncommon ground and um he kind of he collected these words like in a bit of a treasure trove and i don't know if you follow robert mcfarlane on twitter or, or if yeah. you read his books he's obviously someone who's working loads in this kind of very amazing author um and yeah it, it's i guess it's this whole idea for both of them and for me as well it's it's asking the question does, if, if we don't know the words for things, does that diminish their value in our minds? And um, lots of your listeners might have heard about the campaign to get nature words reinstated in the in the dictionary, for example, for, um, in particular, sorry, the young person's dictionary. Like what happens if we take away the word blackberry or um, acorn from a dictionary? Does that does that matter? Like if they're not being used that much in everyday language, does it matter if they're not in the dictionary? Um, and I, I think it's a subject much bigger than that because there's, there's lots of reasons why they're not included in the dictionary. But uh, I, I just think, um, yeah, words and particularly words that we use to describe nature or wildlife or the weather. Again, like like I like I mentioned, seeing amazing sights in nature when I was younger. To me, they're like little bits of treasure. And I think I think Dominic, I think I've stolen that sorry off Robert McFarlane. I think he he describes them as um, word treasure or word magic. It's um it's the the idea of this literacy being a really precious thing that we should we should try and nurture and um not not in itself as a kind of stagnant thing that will never change. You know, just knowing old words collecting them for the for their own sake but um for kind of using them in a in a really um ever-changing and dynamic way to yeah to basically describe and support and enhance our relationship with nature mm. i gave a talk at the natural history museum a couple of years ago on this topic actually um and 
for me what's important about language and culture is that they become an extension of the habitat of so many of the creatures or elements of the landscape that we care about so if we're able to describe let's just say a tiger for example in our stories or our books our films or Mm. our art then that culture becomes an extension of the habitat that the tiger lives in and it's really important to be able to describe and name these things Mm. Um, but at the same time the fact that we're able to describe them and encapsulate them in our culture whether that's in our writing or our pictures or our films or our music means that we must be careful not to allow them to go extinct from the real world itself because having them in our culture but losing them from the real world would be thinking that that means that it's less important that we lose them from the real world would be you know would be disastrous and you know there are species around the world that are going extinct and that will only remain in in memory and in culture so i think there's this there's this tension at the heart of the relationship between nature and language which is that we need to have the power and the knowledge and the ability to name these features of the landscape or these creatures but -hmm. at the same time mustn't allow ourselves to think that that means that we can let them go extinct in nature and in the real world yeah no definitely and i think it doesn't have to be a a kind of dry academic kind of subject as well it can be really fun Mm -hmm. like I, i remember dominic describing um or telling me one of the phrases that he'd collected and um i don't know if you know this one matt uh, witches knickers yeah which is, yeah. isn't particularly nature based because it actually <laughs> describes plastic bags being kind of caught in the branches of trees but i love the way um dominic described that to me at the time we, we were walking along in walthamstow marsh, marshes in london and we saw one and he's um up in the tree and, and dominic described it as you know maybe it's a witch on a, a low flying pass or she just kind of got her got her knickers um, caught in a tree, and it's it's just a really kind of fun way. And that's uh, for me, that's what language is about. It's ever changing. It's it's completely dynamic, and it's it's kind of a tool, but it's it, it can be really fun as well. And it's it's all about it's all about enjoying what's around us, describing it, like engaging with it, and yeah, just getting stuck in. <laughs> yeah, that article that you wrote about about Dominic is really fun to read and there's some fantastic words in there that describe the weather or elements of the landscape or as you say even just a plastic bag caught in a tree it's it's really really good (laughs) um so I wondered if maybe I could close by asking you to say a little bit more about the quote that you sent through to me and maybe maybe you want to you want to read out loud the quote that you that you chose and sent through yeah sure so the the quote i chose was by the amazing poet mary oliver and it's really short but it to me it's it's just amazing and it's it's um quite a cool one to maybe read in the morning of every day not that i do that but um yeah it's very very simple but um i'll just read it the quote is keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable and I just, I just absolutely love that. Like so much of <clears throat> Mary Oliver's poems are just absolutely amazing. Like, not, um, they're not really highbrow. They're just really kind of raw and passionate. And um, she writes a lot about a subject which really resonates with me, which is like, how do we get the most out of life? Um, like, she, one of another of her quotes that she wrote that I absolutely love was, um, she, she apparently said, "I was very careful never to take an interesting job." If you have an interesting job, you get interested in it. 
<laughs> and I, I feel that tension a little bit with my work because I absolutely love being the editor of Positive News. Um, but it also, it's 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 running a magazine. It's a nine to five job. It's it's a lot of work sometimes, and it takes me away from lots of the other things I love doing. So, I think she was pretty on the mark with that one. But yeah, keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable. It just, I love that sense of um, mystery that that evokes. Like we don't know everything. I certainly don't know everything. We we know lots of terrible things about where the world's at and what's really difficult. Um, and, and a lot of the problems seem unsurmountable, and maybe they are, especially when it comes to things like climate change. I might um, be the editor of Positive News, but I definitely don't feel positive every day. Like, they're really, really difficult things that we have to, to grapple with at the moment. But um, I love that idea of, of, of just kind of doing what we can every day. For me, it's like tapping into these things that really mean something deep inside me and giving them some of my time and attention. And again, with positive news, it's like shining a light on these these underreported stories that maybe don't get much of a look in or don't make the headlines usually. But what 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 would happen if we do if we do just imagine that another another way or a better way or a more satisfying kind of human passionate way is possible? That for me is a really 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 inspiring question oh that's a beautiful note to to finish on um <laughs> before before we wrap up completely is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or to say or that i haven't asked you about no i think i think you've done great it's been a great chat so yeah all good from my side thanks matt cool good and um besides potentially subscribing to the magazine or just reading the articles on the website is there anything else that people listening to this podcast can go and go and do yeah so aside from subscribing if if you maybe <clears throat> get the magazine already or or um you know you read the stories online and you, you don't want the physical magazine there's a way that um some amazing readers and supporters support us just with um donations so that's also possible if you again if you go to the website that's all on there um, www.positive.news forward slash join um, and yeah lots of our lots of the people that come across positive news just the, the kind of ethos really resonates lots of people have been supporters of the magazine and well, of the project really for a lot longer than I've been involved um, you know 20 years and more in some of their cases so it's it's an amazing loyal kind of um, passionate reader reader base that we have which which really keeps us going so yeah, a couple of couple of ways there, either subscribe or maybe think about supporting our work in another way. But also just just maybe having a read and, and letting us know if, if what we're doing resonates with you and sharing things on social media, just um spreading the word about what we do really and that's yeah, it's all really useful and really, really appreciated. Okay, great. Lucy, thank you so much. That was I really, really enjoyed that. That was really great. Oh cool, I did too. Thanks so much for asking me on that. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time. <laughs>